2: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion
3: is advised. It must have been May or June 1996. I had been in Belgium for about a year and was engaging in one of my favorite pastimes in my new host country. Grocery shopping in the Delhaize supermarket. Still to this day, 25 years later, I love Delhaize stores. You can always tell a lot about a country by their supermarkets. And Belgium certainly lives up to its reputation as a paradise for good food and drink. I was meandering through the beer aisle when I heard a disturbance a few aisles over.
4: Juliette?
1: Juliette
3: A woman was searching for her daughter
1: Ooh, Juliette
3: The tone of her voice ran borderline hysterical Juliette As she ran from aisle to aisle, yelling out for her daughter
2: Juliette Juliette Juliette
0: What's going on, ma'am?
2: My daughter disappeared
3: Other shoppers joined in And soon half of the supermarket was searching for Juliet.
4: Oh, Juliette, my puce.
3: We found her in the cereal aisle, and her mother hugged her into an embrace, as if she'd almost lost Juliet forever. I remember thinking, hmm, I guess losing your kid in a supermarket is a big deal here. It wasn't until I was leaving and saw the message board near the exit that it hit me. Penned onto the board were two slightly faded flyers with the faces of Julian, Melissa, and Anne and Evia the four girls who'd gone missing in two separate incidences the previous summer. Next to them was a brand new one. Yet another girl, 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne, had vanished in broad daylight. Five girls had now gone missing without a trace. The country was waking up to the frightening fact that all five disappearances were strikingly similar and possibly connected. The terror I'd just witnessed in Juliet's mother and the immediate action from a group of strangers were testament to the fact that fear was beginning to grip the country.
5: A psychopath is somebody who understands emotions.
6: And I told them, it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time.
3: So they've been the end of it in 1986. But
6: my God,
3: it was just the beginning.
4: I think Belgium was a paradise for perverts
3: in those days. Welcome to La Monstre. I'm your host, Matt Graves. The families of Julie and Melissa and Anne and Effia had endured a long and cold winter without any meaningful leads. Spring had arrived in Belgium, but while most people were enjoying the warmer weather and lengthening days, the families of these missing girls were still in the dark, with little to no light shed on the whereabouts or fate of their children. Now, yet another girl had simply vanished without a trace. The latest disappearance was in a French-speaking region near the town of Tournai, about six miles from the French border in the west of Belgium. It was a crisp spring morning in May 1996 when 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne hopped on her bike at around 7.25 for the roughly mile and a half ride to school. She was wearing jeans, a red sweater, blue raincoat, and a small backpack. It was a swimming day so she had her little red swimming bag attached to the port bagage of her Dunlop bicycle. She sometimes met up with a friend who lived on the route to school, and then they'd ride together. But when the friend wasn't there that morning, Sabine didn't find it unusual, so she rode on by herself. Riding on her own, she turned into a quiet street behind the local stadium that was still covered in shadow at that early hour. Little did she know, that predators were lurking in those shadows. She heard the rumble of a vehicle approaching from behind, so she instinctively swerved to the side to let it pass. When it pulled up beside her, she only had a split second to see a man behind the wheel of a dirty van, before another man who was perched next to the open side door swooped out and grabbed her right off of her bicycle. It all happened in a flash. Sabine was ripped off of her bike and thrown into the back of a van in seconds. The man who grabbed her yelled at the driver to stop. They needed to get the bike and swimming bags strewn out on the road. We know a lot about Sabine's experiences based on letters and a journal found where she was held after being kidnapped. Before Sabine knew it, they were moving again and her aggressor was trying to force small pills into her mouth. The van was filthy, with windows covered by stickers and ugly brown and yellow checkered curtains. The back seats had been ripped out and replaced with a dirty mattress. Sabine's aggressor wrapped her up in a filthy blanket and held her down so she couldn't see where they were going. When she struggled and yelled, he pinned her down and covered up her mouth with his hand. His face was inches from hers. His menacing black eyes were terrifying, and she realized that trying to fight back was futile. I think back to my experience in the supermarket. No doubt, people were starting to worry about all these disappearances. But they had no idea how bad it really was. I spoke with an investigative journalist about what the atmosphere was like in the mid-90s in Belgium. Douglas de Konink probably knows more about this case than anyone. He covered it from the beginning for one of the country's most respected newspapers, De Morgan. Everywhere I look to find out more about these disappearances, I constantly run into Douglas's work. When I finally tracked him down, he was deep in the throes of investigating what he called, quote, Belgium's version of the George Floyd case. Needless to say, he's a busy man. And I'm fortunate that he agreed to help me with this project. Um, a colleague of mine, Fred van den Bussen, all the journalists, he published a book in those
4: days. The title was Young Girls Don't Disappear Just Like That. And it was a, a perfect way of expressing uh, what we all felt, because every summer there were young girls getting killed or disappeared. Right. And there was a an, an very strange indifference uh, among the people, yeah. but among the police as well. Um, I remember several policemen afterwards saying that um, in every police department you have a murder section, you have a, a, a burglary section, right. and you also had uh, a section that had to deal with uh, child abduction. And if you were at a child abduction section, that meant that your, your career was really uh, a disaster. They yeah. put the, the, stupid, the most stupid policemen there because it that was, that wasn't considered as
3: being a real form of crime. So it was really something that they almost swept under the rug, it sounds like, uh, when it comes to... I think Belgium was a paradise for, for perverts in those days. I'm certainly not pointing the finger at Belgium with this project. Unfortunately, the world is full of places where children disappear without proper follow-up. In my home state of Texas, a monster named Dean Corll abducted and murdered at least 28 teenage boys under the noses of police in Houston. Child abduction and murder is far from a Belgian problem. If anything, it's a problem that pretty reliably transcends most borders. Belgium simply isn't immune from it.
1: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff.
0: start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it's
3: unbearable to imagine the fear and confusion that must have consumed Sabine Dardenne's mind that terrifying morning only 12 years old In one minute, she's riding her bike on a peaceful spring morning. In the next, she's wrenched into a filthy van, hurtling down the highway. After bumping along what felt like a country road for a while, the van pulled into a smoother road and accelerated. Sabine spit out the first few pills, but the man covered her face with a moist cloth that had a chemical smell that made her feel woozy, and then he forced her to swallow the pills. Remember the attempted abduction in episode one? The perpetrator also purportedly had a moist cloth, most likely with chloroform or another chemical sedative. Still awake and gripped with fear, Sabine pretended to be asleep as the trip continued for what felt like an eternity. When the van finally stopped, the man pointed to a metal tool chest and told her to get inside. After she refused, the man and the driver pushed her into the chest and shut the lid. They carried her inside the chest, and a few minutes later, when they opened it, she found herself inside a dingy house. They took her upstairs to a room on the second floor with windows covered so that she couldn't see out. There were bunk beds and a dinosaur poster on the wall. It felt like a child's room. One of the men then chained her to the bed by her neck and left the room. Back at her hometown of Tournai, it wasn't until the late afternoon when she hadn't come home from school that Sabine's parents realized she was missing. Now, yet another set of parents was living through the nightmare of their child vanishing without a trace. Thanks to the tireless work of Julie and Melissa and Anne and Effie's families, the disappearance of Sabine wasn't just swept under the rug. They wouldn't let the population or the police forget that it wasn't normal for kids to just disappear. Their posters were everywhere and they continued their relentless campaign through a constant drumbeat of press appearances and even their own investigations. The first journalist to have contact with Julie and Melissa's family was a reporter from a major national magazine named Michel Bouffieux. Michel currently works as a journalist at the famous French magazine Paris Match. He agreed to an interview, and I asked him when he first had contact with the families of Julie and Melissa. Actually, it was Julie and Melissa's family who
4: called me a few weeks after the disappearances. They called me because of a book I co-wrote in '93 about human trafficking networks and pedophilia in Belgium. They wanted to discuss the situation and see if I had any thoughts or hypotheses about the disappearance of their girls. And their conviction was clear from the beginning, that the children were alive and that in the absence of finding them somewhere alive or dead, investigators should be urgently focused on finding them. Of course, there's a big difference in urgency when looking for someone alive versus looking for bodies. So we published a first interview in which they expressed frustration at the total lack of information from investigators and judicial authorities. Authorities wouldn't share any information at all, none. They wouldn't even tell them how many investigators were working on the case. When they asked investigators questions like, well, what are your hypotheses at the moment? They were getting frustrating answers like, quote, anything is possible.
3: I asked him what the parents' principal criticisms were of police at the time.
4: For example, Julie's father Jean-Louis Lejeune said, quote, We can't help but feel that investigators aren't up to the task and that they're not the specialists in missing persons that we'd expect to work with on a case like this. And indeed, there were other things they found bizarre. For example, that after two months of investigation, they hadn't even finished canvassing the neighbourhood. And it wasn't until after 15 days that the girls went missing that they even interviewed the fathers about their whereabouts at the time of the disappearances. So yeah, they had the impression that the case wasn't being handled correctly and with a sufficient
3: degree of urgency. I also spoke to a famous radio and television journalist at the time, named José Dessart, about his work to help give parents a voice in the media. José's program, called Fait divers was somewhat like a Belgian equivalent of Dateline NBC in the United States. I asked him about the show on which he invited Julie and Melissa's parents.
5: Cette émission, uh, a réuni I brought together the parents and the authorities who they've been criticizing face-to-face. The parents had a sense of conviction and urgency that clashed with the slowness of judicial authorities. You have to note that the judge appointed to oversee the investigation left for a five-week vacation a few days after being appointed. And then five alternate judges juggled the case in her absence without much efficiency. And so the first reaction of the parents was that the case wasn't being properly followed and that there wasn't a coherent investigation. Indeed, they were interviewed by local police and then federal police came and asked the same questions. They realized there wasn't proper coordination between jurisdictions. And on the show, they were asking the Attorney General directly to start sharing information with them. Two and a half months after the disappearance, they were pleading for access to the case file and direct cooperation with authorities. There were two moments in the debate that stuck with me. The first was when Melissa's father looked at Attorney General in the eye and said, you don't want us to have access to the file, but these are our girls, they're not wards of the state. And another moment was when Melissa's mother said, during all these discussions, all of this back and forth, our girls are suffering. So, there was a sense of urgency from the parents in the face of a sort of lackness and efficiency of the judicial system. It was flagrant.
3: Meanwhile, the summer of 1996 dragged on without progress. Sabine's disappearance was a complete mystery. There were no leads, sightings, or anything at all to go on. And then, on August 9th, another girl disappeared. It was the height of summer in the beautiful Ardennes region in the south of Belgium. At that time of the year, the Ardennes was full of campers, cyclists, and outdoor enthusiasts enjoying nature. In the quaint village of Bertry, 14-year-old Letitia Delez spent the day of August 9th helping her mother with cleaning and shopping. At around 7.30 p.m., Letitia and her sister walked to the local pool and playground where they'd frequently hang out with local friends on lazy summer evenings. Despite its climate weather, Belgium is at about the same latitude as Winnipeg in Canada. So the sun doesn't set until around 9.30 p.m. in early August. Letitia hung out with some friends until around 8.45 p.m. and then left for the short walk back home. She was wearing a blue and white flowered blouse and tennis shoes. When she didn't show up at home, a bit later, her sister and mother walked all around town looking for her. They didn't find Letitia, and they were immediately worried and went to the police. Unlike past disappearances, the police and judicial system jumped into action right away. Police started interviewing locals in Bertry immediately to try to piece together a timeline and find witnesses of anything suspicious leading up to the disappearance. The provincial king's prosecutor, Michel Bourlet, traveled to Bertry in person the next morning and immediately started coordinating with local and national police. Michel Bourlet is probably the most well-known prosecutor in the history of Belgium. If you live through these times here, you certainly know who he is and remember seeing him on television a lot. Through a bit of luck and a lot of persistence, I convinced him to speak with me for this project. My co-producer, Thomas, and I traveled down to the south of Belgium to meet with him at his home. It was a warm day in mid-June, and we settled down on his back porch overlooking a plentiful garden, backed up by rolling hills and thick pine forest. In true Belgian style, he started off by offering me a cold beer and got one for himself as well. It was a great start to a fascinating interview. It was a Saturday morning,
2: and I was here at home getting ready to do some gardening. And around 9 a.m., the phone rang, and Captain Ballar informed me that a 14-year-old girl went missing the previous evening in the village of Bertrie. The girl had left the swimming pool at 9 p.m. and hadn't come home afterwards. The way from the pool to her house was about a 10 to 15 minute walk through the village and the town square. Her mother reported it to the police, who started investigating right away. They searched the route she would have taken, and the area around it. They didn't find anything. Captain Ballar considered the disappearance as worrying. Okay, Okay, I said, uh, I'm on my way. Bertrie is 10 minutes away, so I showed up right away. Captain Bollard explained the search they'd made, and then Mr. Deleuze arrived. Mr. Deleuze is a man who had lost his daughter four years earlier.
3: Philippe Deleuze was the father of a 16-year-old girl named Lawrence Matthews, who disappeared and was then found dead in 1992. When she was found, her body was identified as that of a drug addict who had gone missing, only to reappear the day before her own funeral. Sadly, Mr. Deleuze learned that the misidentified body was that of his daughter. He spent over 20 years trying to identify her killer, and was even accused of the murder himself. He was at the scene in Bertrie with an organization called the Mark and Corrine Association, dedicated to finding missing children. This association was also active at the time in the search for Julie and Melissa and Anne and Effia, who had recently gone missing. Mr. Deleuze's first reaction was that of surprise to see a King's prosecutor on-site so shortly after this new disappearance. It was very uncommon for high-level magistrates to roll up their sleeves and jump into action so quickly on a missing person's case. But if there's one thing I learned during my meeting with Michel Bourlet is that he's anything but common. He exhibits a rare combination of humility, compassion, and the gruff determination of a steely prosecutor.
1: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded... The Apollo Jim murders. I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's
6: just a shame, you know, that they took him from us.
1: Experience this investigation in a truly unique way knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer.
0: Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Maryland Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: King's prosecutor, Michel Boulay.
2: Pour, uh... Deleuze had come to get a photo of Letitia as part of his work with the Mark and Corinne Association, started by the parents of other missing or murdered children. They were there to help authorities by printing and distributing missing children posters. At that time, I was conscious of the Julian Melissa case, And all the problems the parents had had with judicial authorities. I didn't want to fall into all those shortcomings I had perceived and which Julie and Melissa's parents had talked about in the media. The distrust and lack of empathy and information. So I was also there to meet directly with Letitia's parents. I wasn't in my ivory tower or off playing golf somewhere. I was there to show them that we were concerned and that we were there to help them. In the evening, I stopped by the station again for an update. A volunteer who'd come from far away said he thought he'd seen Letitia coming from Blancherey near Bertrie. So, on my way home, I made a detour to Blancherey and searched for about half an hour.
3: I'm really starting to like Michel Bourlet. It's rare for a King's prosecutor to visit the site of a disappearance, and even rarer for him to jump in his car and start searching himself. Unlike in previous disappearances, this investigation got the attention it deserved. Within a day, both local and federal police were all over it. Bourlet quickly enlisted an investigating judge to oversee the case. Police and local authorities were getting support from local volunteers and the Mark and Corinne Association, who were printing and distributing missing persons flyers. While canvassing the area, they spoke to a nun named Sister Etienne, who claimed to have seen a suspicious-looking van near the swimming pool on Friday evening. In her statement, she said the van was parked near the pool, and she noticed it because it was clunky and loud, with a bunch of stickers in the lateral rear window. Police were also interviewing all family members and friends. Letitia's sister said that one of her friends named Virginie thought she'd seen Letitia before the disappearance with a group of young people, including a girl she knew named Kathy. They spoke with Virginie, who confirmed that she thought that she'd seen Kathy with Letitia that evening. But when they tracked down Kathy, she said that she hadn't seen Letitia at all that evening. However, Kathy did mention that she saw a man that she didn't recognize enter the pool complex to use the restrooms that evening. She said her boyfriend also saw this man. So police then interviewed Kathy's boyfriend, Benoit. He said he recalled seeing the man, but couldn't remember anything about his appearance. After thinking about it, Benoit said that he did see a beat-up-looking van that evening parked on the sidewalk facing the pool. It was white, with stickers covering up the back lateral windows. Again, King's prosecutor, Michel soir,
2: That evening, when I went back to the station in Beartree, Major Guissard told me that they had something new. Hmm. And so, then he told me about Sister Etienne's testimony, which I knew about, and then about a new testimony. Oui.
6: As luck would have it, a young
2: man who had given us information on Monday thought he remembered part of a license plate number. He gave us the make of the car, the model of the car,
3: and the beginning of a license plate number. The young man, Benoit Tinon, actually remembered the make, model, and first three letters of the license plate of the van he'd seen three days prior. He said he'd memorized the license plate because he was worried the occupants of this junkie van might steal his bicycle. As luck would have it, Benoit also was a car buff, and he remembered that it was a Renault Trafic model. It shows the importance of thoroughly following every lead and speaking to every possible witness. If you think about it, it's a coincidence that they even spoke to Benoit. Remember that they interviewed him because a friend of a friend of Letitia's sister had noticed a man in the pool restrooms, and she said that Benoit might also remember him. And the van came up randomly at the end of the interview. Investigators perked up at Benoit's description of the suspicious van because it was similar to what the nun Sister Etienne had seen. A lot has happened since the start of this episode, so let's summarize the facts at this point. In May 1996, Sabine Dardenne went missing near Tournai in the west of Belgium. There were no witnesses or clues about what happened to her. Three months later, yet another girl, Letitia Delez, disappeared from Bertry, about 130 miles east from where Sabine went missing. Investigating this latest disappearance, police uncovered an interesting tip corroborated by two separate witnesses about a suspicious-looking van spotted near where Letitia was last seen. By chance, one of the witnesses who saw the van was able to recall the make, model, and first three letters of the license plate. The first three letters of the license plate he remembered were FRR. Police quickly ran a search of all Renault vehicles in Belgium with a license plate starting with FRR. The query gave them 77 hits. Finally, police had something concrete. In serious cases in Belgium, an investigating judge is brought in to carry out pretrial investigations. Bourlet wasted no time in soliciting an investigating judge, Jean-Marc Conrad, who jumped straight into the case with gusto. It had been four days since the disappearance of Letitia. Michel Bourlet and his investigating judge, Jean-Marc Conrad, knew that time was of the essence. They knew it was now or never. Next time on Le Monstre. The agent Van
2: Rillart ran a search in his computer, and several names come back, one of which was a certain Dutroux. I asked, who's this guy? He was someone very interesting and had been under surveillance for a year then by the gendarmerie of Charleroi
4: if you read the report of Dr. Denes, he said, I've done in my career. It was already at the end of his career at the time that he was coming to testify in court about the report that he made on Marc Dutroux. And I said, I've done about 4,000 of these uh, expertises, you know, in investigations towards the personality of somebody else. I never met anybody so close to 100% psychopath. It says if I have to put something on it I think it must be about 97 or something right. but the strange thing is that it is exactly the one thing of feelings that he had left that became his downfall and that is that
3: pride Le Monstre is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Radio Hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Graves. Produced by Thomas Resimont of Bubble Sound. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on the behalf of Tenderfoot TV with producer Makeup and Vanity Set. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on the behalf of iHeartRadio with producer Trevor Young. Original music by Jay Ragsdale. Sound design by Cooper Skinner and Thomas Rezumont. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. La Monstra includes archival audio from Sonuma, RTBF archives, and CNN archives. Special thanks to Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Jean Savigna, and the teams at iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Find us on social media at monster underscore pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
6: Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com
0: products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit MFM.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
1: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.